Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to... <clears throat> I almost said the wrong thing. I almost said Mythgard and Middle-earth, but it's not my Griffith stream. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and we are at se uh, session number 64 here today. Um, and back for an encore session in, in two senses. Uh, one sense, of course, I got so carried away uh, talking about my favorite Tolkien poem last week, which was a super fun session, by the way. That was like one of my, I don't know, maybe top five favorite, like most fun sessions uh, I've had in years. That was so, so great. I was so glad for uh, those of you who could join me in that. But anyway, we had so much fun, I didn't have time for a field trip. So we're back on the Crick Hollow server this week so that we will do our, our field trip with Crick Hollow folks because that was not fair to show up to the Crick Hollow server and then not do our field trip there. So we'll do that. But of course, it is also the... Um, uh, an encore in the sense of we're going to talk we're going to talk about the poem more. Well, okay, sort of. We're not going to talk about that poem more. Um, I'm done talking about the poem, but we're going to talk about um, uh, we're going to talk about the um, the prose discussion right afterwards. So we're going to pick up back on the, what I said last time. So remember, we we did the poem. Now we're going to look at it when Aragorn does his little prose exposition at the end of the poem, right? So we're going to look at the next bit uh, of the of the narrative after the poem. And then we're going to go back to poetry again. Uh, I want to go back and look at the early version of this poem, the sort of the first surviving version of this poem, uh, and then talk a little bit about the context there, because it's really cool uh, when you kind of look into the background of this scene, this moment in The Fellowship of the Ring. It's a super rich moment uh, in Tolkien's kind of uh, writing career, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna look at an old uh, an old version of this same poem. We'll do some comparison and contrast with the poem, uh, with the you know the, the the sort of the modern version, right? The published version from the Fellowship of the Ring that we looked at last time, uh, and then after that we will be ready to move on. And of course, I have no aspirations about moving on until next week. So who knows? Maybe next week we will even get to uh, the Attack of the Ring Wraiths. Who knows? It could happen, right? So. That'll be fun. Now, before I get started, one thing I wanted to emphasize: uh, we have uh, an exciting thing coming up, and we're 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 getting uh, we're starting to get close to it now. We're within a month of it, and that is Middle Moot in Kansas City. I wanted to make sure to draw everybody's attention to that. If you are anywhere, you know, in that area near the center of the country, if you can get down to Kansas City, it's going to be an awesome time. This is uh, our Middle Moot, uh, our second annual Middle Moot. We were in Iowa last year. We're moving south now to Kansas City. Uh, and uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, really, really great time. So uh, I hope that you can join us again. These regional events are designed, they're, they're, they're simple one-day events. They don't cost very much, uh, but it's an, an awesome day. Come out, lunch is included, and, and you'll have a great day uh, uh, hearing uh, from uh, some really interesting people, having some cool discussions. Um, I'm going to be out there um, and giving a talk to, so it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun anyway. So I look for, I always look forward to meeting folks. Had a great time at Middle Moot last year. Looking forward uh, to getting a chance to see a bunch of people and hopefully a bunch of new people this year too. So uh, if you can possibly make it, October 6th, Saturday, October 6th is the date. Go to signumuniversity.org, scroll down just a little bit, and you'll see the link there for the, uh, the Middle Moot registration page. So... Anyway, just wanted to make sure to let you know that's coming up. And, of course, after that is L.A. Moot uh, uh, in, well, near, or in the area of Los Angeles. Uh, and that is October 27th, near the end of the month there. So 
uh, uh, that's that's what's up next uh, after after that. I would also mention I would also mention that we are approaching one of the most exciting times of the year in the Signum and Mythgard world, and that is our annual fundraising campaign, which is going to be starting, as always, uh, on Bilbo's birthday. We've been doing that now for, what, five years? I think this will be our sixth year doing it. Um, so uh, we're going to have uh, a bunch of special things, both some special events, including special Lotro marathons, and also uh, I'm going to be... Uh, we're going to be doing some uh, some special uh, sort of games and activities and giveaways and things during uh, our regular class sessions here uh, during the fundraising campaign as well. So more information on that will be coming up soon. Uh, but uh, that 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 time that, that that fun time every year is approaching. So <laughs> exactly, Karita. Fundraising is the best time of the year. I, I've always loved the fundraising campaign and the our you know the 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 traditional Lotro marathon that I do every year, uh, which has been a lot of fun. From when I did, I did Helm's Deep last year, right? And got blown up in Helm's Deep, which was fantastic. And I got and I did uh, my ludicrous <laughs> all the way through Moria in one sitting marathon <laughs> the year before. Um, so yeah, it's uh, 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 that's a that's a really fun tradition. So we're definitely, I'm definitely going to do something like that again. I think I need to move poor Wigand along. I think uh, I think this might be a uh, let's get poor Wigand as far through Gondor as we possibly can. Marathon is kind of what I'm thinking might happen this year, but who knows? Uh, we'll see. We'll we'll see what we can do. Um, but uh, all the way through Erebor, yeah. Well. It's going to be a little hard with my characters, I got to say. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So looking forward to that. So just let you, wanted to let you know that that is coming, that that stuff is on its way. So um, awesome. Okay, so let's get back to poetry because, of course, that's what everybody's here for, right? Well, no, prose first. Okay, so the leaves of many years, uh, which is of course a quote from the poem. Um, and, uh, you know, we're talking about linden leaves last time, how, uh, Luthien's feet are, are compared to linden leaves. Uh, and, uh, the years of many leaves lying, uh, the leaves of many years lying thick, uh, is in the, is in the poem. And of course you can really see, uh, the leaves of many years, uh, when you look back in the history of this, uh, of this poem, but let's, um, um, Let's move on to the prose, as I said. So after we finish the poem, this is what we get next. Strider sighed and paused before he spoke again. That is a song, he said, in the mode that is called Anthenoth among the elves, but it is hard to render in our common speech, and this is but a rough echo of it. It tells of the meeting of Baron, son of Barahir, and Luthien Tenuvio. Baron was a mortal man, but Luthien was the daughter of Thingol, a king of elves upon Middle-earth when the world was young, and she was the fairest maiden that has ever been among all the children of this world. As the stars above the mists of the northern lands was her loveliness, and in her face was a shining light. In those days the great enemy, of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant, dwelt in Angband in the north, and the elves of the west, coming back to Middle-earth, made war upon him to regain the Silmarils which he had stolen and the fathers of men aided the elves. But the enemy was victorious, and Barahir was slain, and Beren escaping through great peril came over the mountains of terror into the hidden land, into the hidden kingdom of Thingol in the forest of Neldoreth. 
There he beheld Luthien singing and dancing in a glade beside the enchanted river Esgalduin, and he named her Tenuvio, that is, Nightingale, in the language of old. Many sorrows befell them afterwards, and they were parted long. Tenuviel rescued Baron from the dungeons of Sauron, and together they passed through great dangers, and cast down even the great enemy from his throne, and took from his iron crown one of the three Silmarils, brightest of all jewels, to be the bride price of Luthien, to Thingol, her father. Okay. Um... Hang on, is, uh, is anybody else having a, a, a problem getting the audio through uh, Discord? Okay. The Discord audio is working for most people. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, good. So so let's uh, let's think about this sort of synopsis that Aragorn gives us here, right? Or gives to the Hobbits. Now, remember, let's recall the context. It started with Sam saying, well, remember, it started with Mary saying, hey, do you know any more of that song about, uh, about Gilgalad? And Frodo being like, well, sort of. And, uh, and then Aragorn saying, no, 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 let's not tell that story. And Sam saying, but tell us some story from, uh, of, about the elves from before the fading time. And he says, I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel and launches into the poem, right? Um, and... Yeah, so Mike, absolutely. The the <laughs> Mike points out that the prose is all you know, blah blah blah. None of them meeting. It's the opposite of the poem. It is the opposite of the poem. The poem has only that one stanza, which just kind of gestures at the wider story, right? The poem is all about the meeting of Baron and Luthien. and that's that's. Uh, you know, of the nine stanzas, eight of them are about the two of them meeting, right? And the, this, it's only that last stanza that even points at it, but it doesn't even say specifically what it is, right? It doesn't even say specifically what it is that they uh, that they did or where they went or what they accomplished. That's not what's important in the poem. Uh, and this is... Um, this is definitely part of the... Uh, 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 a big part of what Aragorn is doing here, right? He sort of realizes, in a sense, that the poem doesn't exactly, at least not fully, answer Sam's request, right? So he's going to flesh it out. He's going he's gonna to contextualize it. Um, so he gives the context. So, Mike, you're absolutely right. What he gives us here in prose is the absolute mirror reverse, right? Um we get the one sentence in this whole paragraph, right? There he beheld Luthien singing and dancing in a glade, and he named her Tenuvio. That's it, right? That's all we get. That 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 one sentence is like the summary of the entire uh, of the entire poem, right? Um, so let's um, uh, let's stop it now. Yes, um, let's see. People are talking about. Um, um, People are talking about Arwen here. I'll pick up on this for a second. Um, yes, when Tolkien wrote this section, no, he had not. Arwen did not exist when he wrote this section. Um, yeah, James is absolutely correct about that. Arwen uh, is one of the latest additions to the entire Lord of the Rings. Um, Arwen is is added way, way, way at the end of almost absolutely everything. Actually. Um, uh, the ring is destroyed before the character of Arwen is conceived. So um, that is the, the, the narrative gets all the way up to that point. Um, 
So, so yeah, I mean, Aragorn is a descendant of Baron and Luthien, right? And that's clear. But the the personal relevance of this story, like the you know the 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 image, which is very difficult for us to escape, right? Of Aragorn sitting here and singing about Baron and Luthien and thinking about Arwen, right? is not part of the original conception of this scene. Now, that's not to say it's inappropriate. This is one of the things that Tolkien was so good at doing, which is going back and retconning the prose that he had already written. And just by adding one thing, and in this case, of course, adding nothing to the text at all, right? The text is exactly the same as it was, but by having added the concept of Strider, you know, of Aragorn and Arwen, right? That now, that 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 concept now retroactively informs this scene and adds this extra layer of richness of characterization onto it, right? So, I mean, it's it's brilliant how this does, and, and you can see how this sort of led us to... Um, uh, this sort of led him to, to do that in the first place, right? You know, like why it seemed fitting that in the end, Aragorn should be part of a sort of the final recapitulation of the Baron and Luthien story, right? In his own relationship with Arwen. You can kind of see how that came in because it fits. It fits really well, right? But no, it's not part of the original thing. So we we shouldn't ignore it because we're talking about the published text as a published text. You know, the fact that he hadn't thought of it yet when he wrote it doesn't mean it's not relevant to this passage. However, it is a good reason not to focus only on that, right? And if we are only, if when we um, are hearing this passage and uh, you know, hearing his song and hearing him recite and then hearing his, his character, you know, his prose after this here, if in in doing this, all we're hearing is like, or we're just imagining him being like Arwen, 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 we're kind of missing at least a big chunk of the point, right? Um, because it wasn't written for that purpose. So obviously, there's more there than only uh, than only that. Um, so um, yeah, exactly. JJ says that uh, Arwen is added at the end of all things, and Tarloniel notes that that's appropriate uh, for the even star, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, John Castles was thinking the same thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, uh, so let's. Um, oh, sorry. I see a little discussion of about the recording from last week. I, no, it's not on YouTube yet, and that's totally my fault. Uh, it will be soon. I apologize. Uh, I had a really busy week and then was traveling all weekend and I didn't get my files posted in the place where I was supposed to post them. So totally my fault. We'll get there. Um, anyway. Okay. So with that in mind, let's do the forget about Arwen for a second exercise. Again, I don't, I'm not saying it's inappropriate to be thinking about Arwen here cause it's totally appropriate, but um, I want to be thinking about other things as well. Right. Um, now, uh, C. Schwab, Corey Schwab, right? Uh, I love that Strider starts with a poem and only after that provides the backstory, uh, uh, uh for all of the, all of history, pretty much. Yes. Um, uh, puts it in this wider context. I agree. The, I, the fact that, that he, I mean, he could have done it the other way around, right? He could have started off and been like, um, I'm going to tell you about the meeting of Baron, son of Bari here in Luthien Tenuvio. Baron was a mortal man, right? And he starts with the exposition and then he's like, okay, so here's the poem. And then he does it, right? But I agree. I think it's much more effective the other way. Um, especially since it sets, I think, a really important tone because here's my biggest, here's my biggest question for this whole passage, right? 
Why is Aragorn telling this story? Why? Why this story? Instead of another one, right? I mean, Sam asked him for a story of the elves before the fading time. Why this one? Why does this one help? Why is this one relevant? Why is it appropriate in this moment? Here they are in the Dell under Weathertop. The darkness is, uh, is pressing in close, as Sam points out. Uh, he, Strider, probably knows or suspects that the ring raids themselves are, like, not far away. It seems to me entirely likely that the ring raids can actually hear Aragorn's story here. I would not be the least bit surprised if they're actually in earshot pretty much this whole time. Um, so why why this story? Now, hang on. When I, when I ask that question, why does he choose this story? What is the relevance of this story? Don't just brainstorm with the story. Focus on the text, right? What answer does Aragorn give for that? Looking at his... So, so we got two things, right? First, we've got the, uh, we've got the poem itself. So let's go to the point that uh, Korshwa was making, right? Um, that uh, we have the poem first, right? So just the poem, just the poem. What's the what's the message of the poem? What's the relevance? Why is it that he wants to sing this song to the hobbits when, for instance, the song of the fall of Gilgalad would not have done, right? Apparently, as he says, another way of asking this question, what does the poem do, right? What's it about? Now, it's true, Stephen and Catriona, that it shows that the enemy can be defeated. But that's not what the poem is about at all. The poem doesn't even mention that, right? Uh, as we were talking about, it obliquely refers to the fact that they go into darkness, and pass out of it, and 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 then uh, wander about the forest singing sorrowless. Right? It's an expression of hope. Marianne says, "Yes, it's about joy after sorrow." Yes, good. Um, notice, remember the way that the poem starts. Right? Remember those first couple stanzas. The first stanza, in in, in particular, when we see. Luthien dancing, and it's us seeing Luthien dancing, right? We are kind of peeking through the leaves and seeing Luthien dancing in the glade, and then Baron comes in. Um, the way in which our relationship with Luthien there, right? Our perception of Luthien at the beginning of the poem is paralleled with Baron's, right? Um, you can see Strider in his rendition, right, of this song is bringing the reader in very much bringing the reader into Baron's sort of point of view here. Right. Um, uh, so Baron sees light in the shadow. Yes. Um, he sees right light and high beauty, uh, JJ forever beyond the shadows reach. Yes. Yes. Now again, she doesn't explicitly talk about being beyond the shadow's reach, except again that that last stanza, you know, in the forest singing sorrowless, right? The final note of the song does suggest uh, about being beyond the shadow's reach, right? Um, but uh, but anyway, so remember Baron's situation at the beginning of the poem, right? He's wandering, he's lonely, he's 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 weary, um, you know, all those things about him. So th there's, you know, I don't want to go too far with it, obviously, but. 
uh, it's a it's a relevant story for weary, scared, lonely travelers in a strange country, right? So there's a certain relevance uh, to for the hobbits, right, in that scene. And look what happens with Baron. So in a sense, what happens with Baron? I mean, yes, it's a romance story. So, you know, it's a love story. So, I mean, you could say, well, that's not necessarily super relevant because probably none of the hobbits are going to have this particular experience uh, that Baron has. It would be a, a pretty, pretty big implicit promise to make uh, to parallel them very closely with Baron and Baron's experience there. But again, obviously, that's not the point, right? In a sense, what happens with Baron in the sense of finding love, right? Finding a wife, is not really the main point of it, I would say, right? Um, uh, I mean, that that does happen, and that's important for him personally, but it's not really the point of... It's not really the emphasis of the story, right? Remember, the poem is all about the changing of the seasons, right? It's all about light and darkness it's all about life and death in the sense of growing and dying right with the with the fading of this you know the f- through uh through autumn and into winter and the leaves falling to the uh to the ground right uh and the uh and and and, and everything being dead including barren soul again in desolation and loneliness as he's waiting and searching and looking and then the spring leaps forth right when she returns it's so yes, it's about love and 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 it's a it's it's a love story, but it's more than just a love story, right? Um, it's um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Mike says it's the only real victory east of the sea in the first age, even if the poem doesn't detail it. It's still in the mood. Yes, it is, Mike. But again, see what I would emphasize here is that is it about victory over darkness? Yes, it is, but very indirectly in one sense, right? Or maybe I would say this in a different way. I think the way I would say this is the story of Baron finding Luthien and, most importantly, Luthien turning and you catastrophically putting her hand in his, right? Her enveloping him in her arms and, in, and within the shadow of her hair, those that that is the triumph of light over darkness, the joining together of the elf and the mortal man, uh, the so the the finding of light in the darkness and the curing of 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 weariness and loneliness on the part of Baron, um, the the renewal of life, right, which is morrowless and sorrowless, right. That's the heart of the whole story, in a sense. You know, the like defeating Sauron that happens with the help of who on the hound and the the uh, casting of Melkor from his throne and cutting the Silmaril of his from his crown. Those are important. Right. Those are big moments. But in a sense, those are almost just like a metaphor of for what has already happened. Right. The core like the core. You, you can say. You can say that the meeting of Baron and Luthien is like a metaphor, you know, that uh, the the description of them meeting in the woods is like a metaphor for the, the larger conquest of darkness that's going to happen later. But I would actually do it the other way around, right? Um, them casting Melkor from his throne is only making 
open and outward the victory that was already won, in a sense, by their union, right? By their joining, by their coming together, by his calling out her name and her coming and putting her hand in his, right? That's, um, that's, in essence, that's the Baron Luthien story right there, right? Release from bondage, that's the release from bondage right there. Um, you know, the, the, the actual setting f- free from prisons that happens at various points along the way are like metaphors for that central thing, right? But again, the central thing, I think, is, uh, uh, is, is, is what we see in the poem, right? So now, but he has to contextualize, but th- now he does contextualize it and he does sort of unpack it, right? Um, and that's, that's fine, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's also important, right? How is this, how is this applied? How is this relevant? Um, any, any words or phrases, anything that he says in this, uh, in this section that I have up on the screen, jump out at you, you know, the passage I just read, well, just like 15 minutes ago now, any words or phrases jump out at you? There's one that makes me start every time I, Every time I hear it. When he's explaining about Melkor. Whom he doesn't name. Just calls him the great enemy. Right? Yeah, JJ. That's the phrase. In those days, the great enemy of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant. Um, okay, Mr. Do not speak that name so loudly, right? I mean, what he just did is like way worse than anything that the rest of them did, right? Um, it's not just mentioning Mordor, right? This is calling Sauron by his name, right? Um, it's striking and also insulting him at the same time. Yeah, trifle, I agree, but a servant is really does stand out, right? Um, uh, yeah, JJ says he's using uh, uh, Sauron's name as a burn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Curita, yeah, Sauron of Mordor, as if he has to clarify which Sauron he's talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's in, it's so it's fascinating to me that in some sense it's almost as if it's almost as if uh, Aragorn feels that having recited the Baron and Luthien poem, or in the midst of this context of explaining the story of Baron and Luthien, he can not only name Mordor but Sauron himself, and it's fine. Right. He is not endangering them by doing this. Now, of course, you might say, well, part of the problem is that, you know, he might be thinking as far as secrecy is concerned and attracting the attention of the ringwraiths. You know, the there's no sense closing the barn door after the horse has already left. Right. The ringwraiths obviously know where they are. They're going to find them. This is why he was like, let's light a fire. And Sam's like, you know. Uh, that, won't that kind of show us up? And, you know, it's the, the best way to say here we are that I know of bar shouting. Um, but obviously stealth is no longer what Aragorn is going for, right? He's going for protection, not stealth, but stealth. But anyway, 
Uh, so maybe, you know, maybe it's just that. But even in this context, he stopped them from talking about uh, he stopped them from talking about the fall of Gilgalad right when Frodo was about to start talking about Mordor. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Belong's Mond, it does seem to be about that. It does seem to me that um, he's sort of emphasized the, the lack of fear that he is showing. Right. And this is where I, I think this is an important passage to remember when we start looking at, especially in Gondor, how they won't name uh, the Dark One. Right. And, uh, you know, there's this whole like he who must not be named thing going on in Gondor. Remember Aragorn just saying uh, of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant, possibly in the earshot of the Ringwraiths. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, Ambrosius, I agree. Uh, it says for me as a first time reader, the revelation that Sauron himself had an evil master, that there was a bigger dark Lord was a shocking, scary revelation. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And the way that it makes all of this, um, bigger stuff, right? This old, this ancient history, those, you know, the, the, these, these ancient days that Sam wanted to hear stories from, seem like everything was an order of magnitude bigger, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, but anyway, okay, so let's, let's, let's summarize here briefly, because even for those of us who know the Silmarillion pretty well, this is a fairly high density of information that we're getting here, right? Um, so let's look at his emphasis. It tells, that is the song that he just sang, tells of the meeting of Baron and Luthien. Baron was a mortal man, but Luthien was the daughter of Thingol, a king of elves. Okay, so he's emphasizing the gap between them in that sentence, right? Um, Baron was a mortal man. Notice we're not told anything special about him. Baron, son of Barahir, whoever the heck that was, right? And he was a mortal man. That's what we're told, right? And Luthien was not only an elf, but the daughter of an elf, a king of elves. So major social gap between Baron and Luthien is what he first emphasizes here. And P.S. She was the fairest maiden that has ever been among all the children of this world. So, okay. Um, As the stars above the mists of the northern lands was her loveliness and in her face was a shining light. All right. So this is not just about she was awful pretty, right? Um, notice how he is expanding on the theme, all that glimmering and shimmering language from the song, right? And he is emphasizing that. As, a, as the stars above the mists of the northern lands was her loveliness, and in her face was a shining light, right? She is like the embodiment of light and hope. She is that star, right? You know, she is... All of these things. Now, so what happens next? So she's the shining light. She's, uh, uh, she is like the stars above the mists of the northern lands. Um, in those days, the great enemy, of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant, dwelt in Angband, and the elves of the west coming back to Middle-earth made war upon him. So, context, okay. Fighting a huge war with the big, big bad of whom Sauron was only a servant. Okay. They're trying to regain the Silmarils, which he had stolen. What are they? Who knows? Okay, and the fathers of men aided the elves. Great. Okay, so the men and the elves were allies. That's interesting. Good part of this big war uh, to regain the Silmarils, whatever they are. 
But the enemy was victorious and Barahir was slain. Oh, this is becoming a downer now, Aragorn. Uh, that's interesting in the immediate context, right? So the enemy, the bad guys win uh, and the good guys are crushed underfoot. That's bad. And Baron escaping through great peril came over the mountains of terror into the hidden kingdom of Thingol in the forest of Neldoreth. There he beheld Luthien singing and dancing in a glade beside the enchanted river Esgalduin, and he named her Tenuviel, that is, Nightingale, in the language of old. Many sorrows befell them afterwards, and they were parted long. He immediately goes to their parting, right? After mentioning their meeting and his naming of her, right? Uh, oh, and so their story. Okay, let me summarize their story after that. They had a lot of sorrows and were parted for a long time. Uh, okay, that's also an interesting sort of downer note there, Aragorn. Tenuvio rescued Baron from the dungeons of Sauron, and together they passed through great dangers and cast down even the great enemy from his throne and took from his iron crown one of the three Silmarils, brightest of all jewels, to be the bride price of Luthien to Thingol, her father. Interesting, you notice how um, uh, all of this is it sort of circles back around to uh, to their relationship in the end, right? Why did they do all these things, right? Why did that? So they, uh, they, they, you know, we got we just sort of got their resume together. They pass through. She rescues him. They pass through great dangers. They cast down the great enemy from his throne. They took from the Iron Crown one of the three Silmarils, brightest of all jewels. Oh, that's what the Silmarils are. Uh, to be the bride price of Luthien to Thingol, her father, right? Why did they, they did all these things together so that they could be together, right? Um, so that Baron could be with the shining light, right? The one who, as the stars above the mists of the northern lands, was her loveliness. Um, <laughs> Yeah, JJ says they're sort of like the Arkenstone that you may have heard Bilbo describe, though they're totally not the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like that. Yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going, because this is, of course, only half the paragraph. It's long. Yet at the last, Baron was slain by the wolf that came from the gates of Angband, and he died in the arms of Tenuviel. But she chose mortality to die from the world so that she might follow him. And it is sung that they met again beyond the sundering seas, and after a brief time walking alive once more in the green woods, together they passed long ago beyond the confines of this world. So it is that Luthien Tenuvio, alone of the elf kindred, has died indeed and left the world, and they have lost her whom they most loved. Okay, this is sounding more and more like a bit of a downer, Aragorn, right? This is his emphasis. They've lost her whom they most loved. They've passed, they passed away. Together they passed long ago, beyond the confines of this world. That's where he goes with the story. So it is that Luthien Tenuvia, alone of the Elkindra, has died indeed and left the world, and they lost her whom they most loved. But from her, the lineage of the elf lords of old descended among men. There live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, and it is said that her line shall never fail. Elrond of Rivendell is of that kin. For of Baron and Luthien was born Deol Thingol's heir, and of him Elwing the White, whom Arendil wedded, that he that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world into the seas of heaven with the Silmaril upon his brow, and of Arendil came the kings of Numenor, that is, Westerness. Okay. 
Excellent. Yeah, so Mad Violinist, that is a really interesting thing, isn't it? What we come to, the heart of the story does seem to be the sacrifice of Tenuvio, right? Um, I don't think of, I mean, I've, I'm kind of teasing Aragorn about telling a sort of apparently discouraging story, but I don't think it's about discouragement, obviously, in the end, right? It's clearly about sacrifice. Um, Tenuvio's sacrifice. Um, Gilgon theory, exactly, because we see the fruit of her sacrifice. Her line shall never fail. That is a hopeful note, right? Um, there is good fruit to her sacrifice. She chose mortality and to die from the world so that she might follow him. Um, the beautiful reciprocity here, right, of... Um, hang on a second, I have a feeling... Yep, sorry... My apologies. Um, the the way in which um, uh, the way in which Tolkien uses um, this mirroring, right? So we have her, him coming in and finding her and following her, uh, and her turning to him, and now that turning, right? When she initially turns and sets her hand in his, is only an anticipation of the the later moment right where she's gonna he has come through the mountains of terror and through you know through from death and 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 through fear uh to her she is gonna cross the gulf of death itself to follow him after that right and of course we have him in the poem chasing her all over the place right seeking her and and searching for her and she of course is gonna turn and search for him too um so uh yeah. Anyway, um, let's see. Let's see. Where is... I see you guys talking about Doom. I missed it. Does it use the word Doom here? I mean, Doom is obviously an important concept, and... Baron's doom is important, uh, but I don't. I don't. Maybe I, I might just be totally overlooking it. But I don't think it's used here. That which is important, if I'm right, right? Um, that it's oh, it's it's in the actual poem. I think so. Yeah. But my point is, he that's not his emphasis, right? He could have said, as indeed it is said in the Silmarillion, that a mighty doom is laid upon Baron, right? And this is why he is able to pass into Doria through the girdle of Melian in the first place. Notice that's not even alluded to in either place, either in the poem or in the prose, right? Um, but, uh, so, and that seems to me important, because that could be a way in which he it could be an angle that Aragorn would choose to emphasize, right? He might say, you know, a, a mighty doom was laid on him and thus he was able, he was enabled to accomplish, you know, his incredibly unlikely seeming quest, right? He had this impossible seeming quest, in his case, of course, designed to kill him um, into darkness, you know, to go into darkness, into the heart of the enemy's realm. But hey, it kind of panned out for him in the end, didn't it? Right? He could totally do that, right? He could totally, um, he could totally, uh, turn the story that way. That would be a, a very applicable turn 
to this story uh, for Frodo here, but he doesn't do that. Right? He doesn't talk about Baron's doom. Uh, he doesn't exactly uh, suggest that um, uh, that parallel. Um, yeah, good. Valori says in the poem, it's passive. Doom fell on Tenuviel. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, good, good. So th- there is that emphasis on the poem, but again, it's not Baron's doom. It's her doom, and it's the doom that she... Uh, that falls upon her as a result of her, of the spell, right? That he casts on her, but also as a result of her, of her choice. Sure. Um, anyway. Okay. But again, that's not when he's telling the prose story, that's not what he emphasizes. What he emphasizes is the sorrow, the sadness. This is a sad story that he's telling. A Baron and Luthien story is a sad story. Um, they, you know, they, they struggle, they suffer. He's killed and dies in her arms. And then she loses more, you know, she chooses mortality, which is great. Um, but at the same time, he then emphasizes the sorrow of everybody else. Right. Um, and they have, they lost her whom they most loved. Um, so he, again, he, he seems to emphasize the very sadness of the story, not just for Baron and Luthien, but for the people around them, right? It seems to me that what's important about this story is not that it ends well, despite the sadness. It's the sadness itself, which is an important, um, which is an important, uh, element, I think, of this, right? Um, yeah, Mike says, ask, ask Dairon if it's a happy story. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that we find here that I think is really important, it's easy for us to, in trying to think of why... Aragorn is telling this story, why Tolkien has chosen this story at this moment uh, to lift up the hearts of the hobbits in the dell under Weathertop. I think that the important thing here is to notice that he doesn't tell a happy story. Now, you might say there aren't very many happy stories, but there are happy... At the very least, you could try to emphasize the happy elements, as indeed many of us have been doing in talking about it, right? I mean, you can spin this story in a happy way. It's a story about true love, right? Who doesn't like a good story about true love? It's a kissing book, right? So we, we, you, you tell a true love story and, you know, there's this catastrophe at the beginning and at the end, right? My goodness. And they overcome darkness and like, let's, let's tell like the Baron and Luthien's greatest hits about all the awesome things that they accomplished. And, um, it's great, right? You could totally spin this as a happy story, Right. There are lots of happy elements to it, lots of hopeful elements to it that you could take from it. But um, that's not what he emphasizes is, I think, the important thing there. Right. He doesn't emphasize the happy bits. Um, He doesn't exactly shirk that shirk away, you know, uh, uh, shy away from them. Um, But that's not 
how that's not how he tells the story. It's not how Aragorn tells the story, right? That's not what he emphasizes. Um, first, he tells the poem, right? He tells about the meeting. That's the essence, right? That's the most important thing. But in his synopsis, he talks about when he puts it in context. The context is a context of sorrow, right? It is the sadness of this story in a in part that is really important. But although it's sad, although it involves much suffering and fear and pain and death, it's a good story, nevertheless, right? Um, remember the primary sort of moment that's going to come from this, right? Um, you know who's going to remember this story best, of course, and that's Sam. And it's going to be this moment, it seems to me, that Sam is primarily reflecting back on in that conversation he's going to have with Frodo in the stairs of Carathongol, right? When he talks about happy ending or sad ending stories and how you don't know whether it's going to be happy, you know, the people in the story don't know whether it's going to be happy ending or sad ending, right? Um, and that a story can be good to hear even if it wouldn't be one that would be good to be in, right? Um, and that sometimes those stories, which don't sound like any fun um, to be in, are ones that are really good to hear, right? And are really important to hear. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Matt is just thinking about exactly exactly the same thing. Um, when, uh, you know, when he realizes, as Marianne was just saying, when Sam realizes that they're in the same tale, that I think is... Ultimately, Sam getting exactly what Aragorn was thinking, possibly even more than Aragorn was thinking. I think that the, the moral that Sam has taken from this story may be even beyond what Aragorn was kind of going for uh, when, he, uh, when, when, he, when he told the story here in the first place. It is an important story for them to know. It's an, just here, this is how the world works. And it's how the world works in all these different... catastrophe happens. There is reason for hope. There is light and beauty that the, that the shadow cannot touch, right? And cannot destroy. But there's also sorrow. There's also pain. There is death and long separation. There is a price of sacrifice. A real price. Luthien sacrificed herself to be with Baron, and that was beautiful. That was the it's the final you catastrophe of the Baron and Luthien story, right? Uh, off they go together singing sorrowless, right? Um, and yet there's a real cost to it. And you know, and they have lost her whom they most loved. Um so yeah, yeah. Um so that's ultimately what they, you know, in a sense, they get a, an extremely sort of well-rounded story, right? Um, it is not merely an encouraging story. Again, very encouraging elements in it. Um, and some of those get emphasized to some extent putting Sauron in his place in the big picture, right? Talking about the overthrowing of the great enemy who was Sauron's boss um, and all these things. But uh, they are learning he, through this story. They are learning about this is, this is how the world works, right? This is what happens. And that even in, even when there is loss 
and death and suffering, right? Even when it looks like your story is failing, as it kind of might have done, right? Yet at last Baron was slain by the wolf that came from the gates of Angband and died in the arms of Tenuviel. Seriously? That's how their story ends? They go through all of this in order to achieve her bride price, right? From the crown of Morgoth. And then, like, right afterwards, he dies in her arms? Seriously? That's the end of the story? Well, no, of course, it's not the end of the story. And we get a catastrophe that comes after that. The catastrophe of sacrifice. But, of course, it comes at a cost. Valoria, exactly. It comes at a cost to Tenuvio. Uh, to Lu- or sorry, to Thingol, rather. Right? And through, through Thingol, you know, kind of by extension, everybody else. Right? All of the other elves. Um, so... I mean, again, all of that, all of that stuff is there. And, um, again, yeah, the encouragement that they're given is not just, Hey, look at the bright side. Hey, like know that, you know, there's somebody in your corner, know that, you know, the good guys are going to win in the end, right? That's not the kind of encouragement that they're given. And the very sadness of the story is itself part of its beauty and through its beauty, therefore, its power, right? This is um, this is a glimpse of how, how things are supposed to be, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, maybe it is, Lady Shmebuak, the, uh, uh, sort of partly the memory of this story that gives Sam the hope that he experiences when he sees the star. Yeah. Exactly, Matt. No quick victory and home by Christmas. Um, no, let's pop off to Rivendell and then come back home again, like Marion Pippin sang about in their original song in Crick Hollow, right? Yeah, no, it's just, that's not how things are. Um, and Zeph and I agree with you. I think that a hey, look on the bright side of things story would not have much power over the hearts at this moment. Would that be able to combat the fear that is right now being positively emitted by the uh, by the ring rates, right? I don't think so. Um, you know, think happy thoughts is not the way to uh, to fight the ring rates in the darkness when you're alone in the wilderness, right? That, I think, is not uh, not really the method. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Let's let's go back to the poem. Um, here's the original poem, and then I'm gonna we're gonna so we're we're gonna look at this because I think it's really interesting to see the primary thing I want to get out of this. Um, there's much more that we could talk about and look at um, thinking about this in its earlier context, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But what I primarily want to do, one of the things that is always for me most fun about looking at an earlier version of a poem like this is we can see the direction that Tolkien changed it, right? In what direction did he push it when he revised it? Because we'll notice some some interesting differences, right? What patterns can we see in the differences between this poem and the later poem, the poem that we already read? Um, because that will help us to see what is he emphasizing, right? When he reworks this poem in its new context, 
right? In its new context in the Fellowship of the Ring. What does he choose to emphasize and how does he change it? And that should help draw our attention to some of the things happening in the published poem that we looked at last time that maybe we didn't think about uh, uh, in uh, in the same way. So, okay, so here's here's the original. You'll see it has a very similar shape. The grass was very long and thin, the leaves of many years lay thick, the old tree roots wound out and in, and the early moon was glimmering. There went her feet, there went her white feet lilting quick, and Dairon's flute did bubble thin, as neath the hemlock umbles thick, Tenuviel danced a shimmering. Okay, so notice we've got the same shape. Right. You've got this, those C rhymes glimmering and shimmering. Same words. Right. Um, notice we've got the ABA, BAB rhyme scheme form. Notice also that the repetition of words is much firmer from the beginning. Notice thin, thick, thin, thick uh, is repeated in exactly that order at the beginning. So that, that, that repetition of words in the A and B rhyme is prominent. And you'll see that's unvarying throughout this poem. I think it's unvarying. Maybe it varies and I've forgotten, but as you can see, it's very prominent. We can already peek ahead, right, and see noiselessly leaves, noiselessly leaves in the next stanza there as well. Um, what else do you notice immediately about this? Um, Carita says it feels less like singing and more like uh, a news story, more news story. Um yeah, yeah. There's certainly less of that firsthand experience. Notice how, you know, remember what I was when I was talking about how we're sort of invited like ourselves to be peeking through the leaves and seeing first something shimmering in the darkness. And then it turns out to be the starlight shimmering on her hair. Right. Um, it's uh, it's not like that. It's told from a much more sort of objective third person point of view. Right. We get this the three different lines now about the old forest, right? And the early moon was glimmering. You know, Karita, as you say, we're just kind of describing the scene, right? And then there she is, her white feet lilting quick. So here she is dancing. And we got the the pipers mentioned, right? Dairon is named. Uh, it's his flute uh, that's bubbling along. Um, and there she's dancing beneath the hemlock umbles, right? Okay, no problem. Um, so yes, JJ, we, we did, we did cut the flute player like Dairon is. So he was there, right? I mean, somebody was playing and it was presumably him, but, uh, uh, we didn't, uh, we never even got introduced to him, um, uh, in the, uh, uh, in, in the new poem. And yes, she is already named here. Uh, uh, Mike Tenuviel danced to shimmering. That's very important, right? Um, this is already her name, right? The pale moths lumbered noiselessly, and daylight died among the leaves, as Baron from the wild country came thither wayworn sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock sheaves, and watched in wonder noiselessly her dancing through the moonlit leaves and the ghostly moths of following. I love how the uh, the moths, I love the moths too, Karita. I love how we've got the, 
the 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 pale moths lumbering lumbering is a wonderful uh, uh, verb for moths right the 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 noiseless lumbering of the moths through the air uh, and then as daylight dies and you know she is there dancing in the moonlight the moths are following her right as of course is Baron's gaze and soon to be Baron himself right yes but it's very rigidly third person isn't it Matt it gives you that uh, that very sort of obje- we're very much kind of looking down on all this stuff happening there's Tanuviel dancing there's Baron coming in to follow her their magic took his weary feet and he forgot his loneliness and out he danced unheeding fleet where the moonbeams were a glistening through the tangled woods of elfiness they fled on nimble fairy feet and left him to his loneliness in the silent forest listening still hearkening for the imagined sound of lissom feet upon the leaves for music welling underground in the dim-lit caves of doriath but withered are the hemlock sheaves and one by one with mournful sound whispering fall the beechen leaves in the dying woods of doriath okay yeah once again you see the repetition of the uh of the of the of the nouns um note uh, you know the the rhyming words right feet loneliness feet loneliness uh notice how uh that gets reversed again so we see a similar motion that we did in the other poem We're, his weary feet is being rhymed with nimble fairy feet right so we see the rever- the reversal there but notice how that reversal is just a contrast right um, his mag- his magic is taking his weary feet and he's forgetting his loneliness and his 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 feet are becoming fleet right uh, he comes comes dancing out uh, with her he is enchanted and we see the enchantment working on him but the rhyme word the repeated word introduces really primarily just a contrast right between his weary clumpy mortal feet uh, and their nimble fairy feet and notice it's them right the two of them again it's luthien and dairon uh who are fleeing away um yeah yeah um so again we it's it's much less that uh that repetition with uh his remember the roaming and the wandering right that was coming back it was that was being done so poignantly in that in that stanza Still hearkening for the imagined sound. Oh, I already did that one. Um, notice how Doriath is the rhyming term, right? We don't get any non-ing words as the C rhyme until the very last stanza of the newer poem, right? But in the old poem here in stanza four, we have Doriath being used as a repeated word, uh, multisyllabic rhyme in the in the in the C position, right? So we, which is also it kind of works, right? It kind of works because the like the 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 movement right the glistening listening glimmering shimmering has ceased right and he's waiting he's hearkening um listening for the imagined sound of lissom feet upon the leaves um the only movement in that whole stanza is the are the the beechen leaves falling in the dying woods of doriath right um Notice, of course, also the very fact that Doriath and Dairon, the proper nouns, I mean, are being used here in the poem, places the story in more his in a more 
kind of historical context than we were getting with the new poem. The new poem was more distant from all of that. I mean, he had to explain it all in prose because you wouldn't have gotten their story at all. I mean, the rest of their story, the context of their story uh, from the poem itself, right? And the poem itself was totally uninterested in that. Um, he sought her wandering near and far where the leaves of one more year were strewn by winter moon and frosty star with shaken light a-shivering. He found her neath a misty moon, a silver wraith that danced afar, and the mists beneath her feet were strewn in moonlight palely quivering. She danced upon a hillock green, whose grass unfading kissed her feet, while Dairon's fingers played unseen, or his magic flute a-flickering. And out he danced, unheeding, fleet, in the moonlight to the hillock green, no impress found he of her feet that fled him swiftly flickering. So here she runs away again. The story, the story of their meeting gets sort of protracted a little bit here. Um, he sees her dancing. We get the grass, though. Notice what we don't get emphasized here, right? We don't get an emphasis on, um, we don't get an emphasis on the, uh, the spring, right? We had that winter image, uh, you know, with the beech and leaves and everything, but we don't get, you know, her song calling forth the sudden spring uh, or any of that. We get the references to the grass, right? So we can kind of figure out that spring was happening, but we don't, um, um, that's not what it primarily emphasizes. Um, no impress found he of her feet, I really like. And Karita, it is kind of fun to have Luthien described as a wraith, Right. Yeah, that is, uh, especially, of course, in this context, interesting. She is a silver wraith that danced afar. Yeah, Finboga, if he had still called her a wraith in the fellowship, he'd have had to interrupt himself and say not to, said not to say such things. Uh, was clearly less freighted at this time, as certainly as, you know, this was way, 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 way before the invention of the ring wraith. And longing filled his voice that called Tenuviel, Tenuviel, and longing sped his feet enthralled behind her wayward shimmering. She heard as echo of a spell his lonely voice that longing called Tenuviel, Tenuviel. One moment paused she glimmering. Um, I love that line. One moment paused she glimmering. Um, she hears his voice calling out. She's running away again. She's in full retreat, right? And she hears him calling from a distance as an echo of a spell, right? Behind her, wayward shimmering uh, is him, right? His And his feet are enthralled, right? He is enchanted. He can't help himself. He's enchanted, right? Uh, and he's, he's, he's running after her and uh, calling out to her. And she pauses when his spell falls upon her as her spell has very thoroughly been laid upon him. And Baron caught that elfin maid and kissed her trembling starlit eyes to Nuviel, whom love delayed in the woods of evening morrowless. Till moonlight and till music dies shall Baron by the elfin maid dance in the starlight of her eyes in the forest singing sorrowless. Okay, so um, notice 
this is a little more proactive on Baron's side, right? It is still mutual in the sense that it is love has delayed her, right? She paused and she paused because she was listening. She was by love delayed, right? And that's why he caught her, right? But it is the story, Mad Violinist, exactly. Um, well, it's a story of a fairy capture of a mortal, but it's also of a mortal capturing a fairy, right? I mean, this is this is one of the ironies that this story is still working with, this poem is still working with, is this, this idea, right, of an enthralled mortal chasing desperately and hopelessly, ultimately, uh, after a fairy princess dancing in the forest whom he will never possibly catch, right? Um, and he does. Right. I mean, this is like somebody who actually this is like a story of someone who actually gets to the other end of the rainbow. Right. I mean, it's this um, uh, it's this remarkable thing. Well, I see. But Mad Violinist, I'm not sure I agree. Um, it It is mutual in this. Yes, he's he's caught and dances forever in a sense that is like uh, that is like exactly what can happen sometimes and sometimes in a very punitive way, right? By mortals who are caught by fairies, but she is also caught by him, right? So we do have this sort of myth of a, of a, of a, of a mutual capture, right? But Mad Violinist, I absolutely agree with you. It is, this is a much more traditional telling the, uh, the 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 kind of traditional fairy story that underlies this um, encounter, you know, the whole Baron and Luthien story, is much closer to the surface, isn't it? You can feel it much much closer there. This is it's like a variant of a traditional story, right? Um, it's still it's it's a remarkable, it's still a remarkable and you catastrophic variant, right? Um, that they are in the forest singing sorrowless. Um, but yeah, singing Fox, it is interesting, isn't it? The story is finished with the end of the poem. Um, Till moonlight and till music dies shall Baron by the elfin maid dance in the starlight of her eyes in the forest singing sorrowless. Are they going to have any further story? They moving on? Fighting Melkor? Him dying? Her going beyond death? No hint of it. It says this is the end of their story here, right? So, uh, all right. Let me explain a little bit of the context here. Tolkien published this poem in a magazine. Um, it is my belief that Tolkien wrote this poem independently. Um, that is, I don't... I suspect that this poem, when he first wrote it, was not a Baron and Luthien poem at all. I think this was a, a mortal elf poem. This was a, a poem about an, a, a mortal who met an elf in the woods. And this was how it ended. It doesn't mention any other story because there wasn't any other story. And it ends, Mad Violinist, exactly as you're saying, exactly as so many of these mortal stories. To, when uh, you might get a happy ending. It's happened before, right? In fairy stories, when you meet with a, um, when you meet with a, 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 you know, a fairy queen in the forest, sometimes if you are exceptionally lucky, 
that has a happy ending that totally is precedented right but um it's you never just come back to the normal world right um if it does have a happy ending it almost always ends with like it's a one-way trip right you go and you are taken into fairy and you live there uh forever if you're super lucky happily ever after if not in like stasis or eternal torment right um it's uh you know it can kind of go one way or another um but this whole um uh this whole till moonlight until music dies shall baron by the elfin maid dance in the starlight of her eyes in the forest singing sorrowless right until the end of time until there is no more music right they you know they're in this sort of static place right um several of you are asking about <clears throat> the association with himself and his wife tricky tricky If I had to guess, I would guess that this poem, Light as Leaf on Linden Tree. So now keep in mind, I'm piling guess upon guess here. <laughs> okay. So guess number one. Um, I believe that this was written prior to the Baron and Luthien connection. I don't think this was written for Baron and Luthien. I think it was written as a fairy story, um, sort of an objective fairy story with an unnamed characters. Um, and then I would guess, on top of that guess, I would then also guess that he was thinking of Edith. Yes. Yes. Um, I suspect that that came first in this story. We know that the incident that he talks about of her dancing among the hemlock umbles, Edith, his wife... Um, was early, right? Well before the publication of this poem or uh, its insertion into the Silmarillion world. Um, so yeah, yeah, I definitely think that that's um, that that's part of it. Well, right now it's Harnath. It's not about like whether or not it's the association between him and Baron and Luthien is, you know, him and Edith and Baron and Luthien is very, very well established, right? Um, it's literally carved in the stone, Harnath, of course, as you point out on their tombstone. But um, my point is about this poem before it became a Baron and Luthien poem, right? So, okay. Because here's, here's the interesting thing. The story of Baron and Tenuvio... Luthien is a much later name. Her original name was Tenuviel. The story of Baron and Tenuviel is in the Book of Lost Tales. Book of Lost Tales, go to the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2, and read the tale of Tenuviel, and you'll get the original story of, of Baron and Tenuviel. What you will notice when you read this is that Baron is not mortal. <laughs> He's not a man. He's a Noldor. Uh, he's Noldo and she's Sindar. So it's still a, like, you know, uh, 
like Romeo and Juliet kind of situation, right? Um, you know, their two houses don't really get along super well, but it is not a mortal in fairy story at all. The Baron and Luthien story. Um, I think my own theory, my own theory is that this poem, it is this poem that led to Baron and Luthien becoming, Baron's becoming a man, ceasing to be an elf and becoming a man. Um, I think he wrote this poem separately, possibly thinking about Edith, probably thinking about Edith. And then he decided this is a Baron and Luthien poem, in fact. And then that's when he adds the names into the poem. Um, and after doing this, so first he writes the Baron and Luthien story, Baron and Tenuvial story, I should say, in the Book of Lost Tales, right, in which Baron is an elf all the way through. And then he revises this poem to make it a Baron and Luthien story, realizing that, like, this poem, this is really, this is it, right? This is the heart of the Baron and Luthien story. Um, it, that, it, that needs to be worked back into it, right? And then it becomes, this becomes then the Baron and Luthien story. Now, here's the interesting thing. When this came up, this poem, um, this version of the poem that I've just given you, um, you know where it came from? This comes from the Lays of Beleriand. So it comes from the Lays of Beleriand. It does not come from the Lay of Lathian. So Tolkien writes the Book of Lost Tales first. Right. Eh, almost writes it. Doesn't finish it. Right. But he's working on the Book of Lost Tales. This is the first version of the Silmarillion story. And then he's, he sets those aside and he focuses on some of the great tales. And he's like, okay, what I need, um, what I need is, uh, I need the, uh, I need to write epic poems, right, about some of these great stories. So what does he start with? What 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 story does he begin with? Turin Turambar, of course, right? Turin was always first. Uh, Turin is always first. Um, the story of Turin is one of the very first things he ever wrote. Um, so he's going to write an alliterative epic poem of the children of Hurin. So, so we get the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin, and he's writing this in like 1918, 1919, right, way back. Um, he writes, he starts writing this poem and he writes quite a bit of it. He gets in the Turin Turambar story all the way up to, uh, I was about to say Gondolin, Nargothrond, all the way up to Nargothrond. Okay. So he gets up to Nargothrond in the Turin Turambar story. And then he kind of does his thing that he so often does, right? He goes away from it for a while and comes back to it instead of picking up where he left off. He's like, I need to start it again from the beginning, right? So he starts it again from the beginning. Classic Tolkien maneuver, right? Uh, starts this, the poem again from the beginning and starts writing a second version of the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. But as he's doing so, something really interesting happens. At a certain point in the story, the story of Baron and Luthien just keeps bubbling up through the story of Turin Turambar. And he includes a reference to the story of Baron and Tenuvio. Like he just alludes to the story. And soon after, 
he has somebody mention the story. And when they mention it, they start telling, it just starts keep, it, gets, it starts coming in more and more detail. And then, wham, he inserts this poem into the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. Um, which is striking because this poem is not alliterative at all. It's a totally different style. Um, and so he inserts it like an inserted poem within prose, except it's an inserted poem within a different poem, right? So, like, we interrupt this alliterative lay to give you light as leaf on linden tree. And then we resume the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin, right? Um, after more discussion of Baron and Luthien. Soon after this, he stops writing the alliterative lay of the children of, uh, of the children of Hurin and starts writing the lay of Lathian, starts writing a full length epic poem about Baron and Luthien, right? It's almost like the Baron and Luthien story was just like hatching out of the egg at this point. I mean, again, it's, it had been born already. It'd been written, but it needs to be redone, right? It's, it's, it's fully cooked now, right? Uh, and it, it, it really needs to come out. It really needs to be told. So he shifts and he abandons the alliterative lay of the children of Purim. And he starts writing the lay of Lathian, the story of Baron and Luthien. Now, um, guess at what moment the Baron and Luthien story comes out and he inserts this poem into the lay, into the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. So, okay. Cast back in your mind... Uh, to the story of Turin Turambar. I know that's a painful place to revisit, uh, but revisit it near the beginning of the story, at least as it's told in the published Silmarillion. Uh, so you'll remember that everybody dies at the near Nithernoidiad, right? And here is Morwen, left uh, Turin's mom, right? Left a widow, and Turin alone, because his sister's not born yet, um, uh, younger sister, older sister's already dead. And uh, so she's going to send him away, right, to keep him safe because she's worried about his safety. So she's going to send him to Doriath in order to uh, uh, to be fostered by King Thingol, right? Remember that? But it was a long journey uh, from uh, Hithlum, where they were all the way down to Doriath, where Thingol is. And in the alliterative lay, he is given two companions, two human companions, um, who are, you know... Uh, trusty members of Morwin's household who are given charge of Turin to bring him down to uh, uh, to Doriath, right? But there comes a time well, so let's look at it. Here's the context. Oh, look at me. Oh my goodness, I forgot the last stanza! Holy cow! How could I forget about that? Wherever grass is long and thin, and the leaves of countless years lie thick, and ancient roots wind out and in, as once they did in Doriath, shall go their white feet lilting quick, but never Diron's music thin be heard beneath the hemlocks thick, since Baron came to Doriath. Oh, man. Can't believe I forgot the last stanza. That's terrible. Here I was, I was, uh, I got sloppy because, of course, we got to sit in the forest singing sorrowless, and I'm like, the end, right? But of course, it's not the end in the original. Um, uh, we kind of pan back. That's the end of their story, right? But we kind of pan back to the outside 
world, right? And uh, wherever grass is long and thin and the weaves of countless years lie thick. So we have like the, the, the memory of the forest from the beginning where Tenuvio was singing, right? And like wherever you can find forests as once growing like this, as once they did in Doriath, shall go their white feet lilting quick. So again, we have this sort of infinite continuation of, um, of, of their story, right? But it ends on a note of sorrow. But never Dairon's music thin be heard beneath the hemlocks thick since Baron came to Doriath. Dairon's out of there, right? Uh, Dairon is the third wheel in this situation, and he is never heard from again since Baron came to Doriath. Uh, so even in this version of the story, there's still a cost, even though Baron and Tenuvia live happily ever after in this version of the story. We do still get that note of sorrow and the repetition of Doriath as the sea rhyme. Whew. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> likely a bot. That's a good name. Um, uh, it says, uh, like Edith's fiance going away. Yeah. Mm, you know, kind of like that. It's kind of hard to deny that parallel, isn't it? For those of you who don't know. So B- D- Tolkien met Edith and, you know, they were like, you know, attached um but his guardian said no you know you can't like don't see her again until you're 21 and he was like okay fine and so he did and then he comes back it's like on his 21st birthday he like goes to propose and find she's already engaged to somebody else oh snap but they have a heart-to-heart talk and he talks her out of it and she marries him instead um so yeah there is a certain parallel there isn't it with uh poor Dairon. um yeah so Anyway, but back to what I was going to say before. I can't believe I forgot the last stanza of the poem. That is so horrible and sloppy. Um, Here is the alliterative lay immediately before and after this poem. Then a song he made for them for sorrow's lightning. Because, see, they're in a forest, and it's very dark, and it's very scary. And they're a long way from home and they don't know that they're going to be able to achieve their journey and they don't know what's going to happen to them and and Turin is afraid, right? Then a song he made for them for sorrow's lightning, a sudden sweetness in the silent wood, that is, light light as leaf on linden called, whose music of mirth and mourning blended, yet in hearts does echo. Thus did Halog sing them. Halog is, of course, one of the two guys who's with him. And then we get the poem in a totally different meter, of course. And then right after the poem, he transitions back by saying, This for hearts uplifting did Halog sing them, as the frowning fortress of the forest clasped them, and nethermost night in its net caught them. There Turin and the twain knew torture of thirst, and hunger and fear, and hideous flight from wolf riders and wandering orcs and the things of Morgoth that thronged the woods. Okay, so they are uh, in a frowning fortress of the forest. Um, This song is sung for hearts uplifting, right? It's exactly the same context. They are surrounded by, they are about to be pursued um, in hideous flight from wolf riders and wandering orcs and things of Morgoth, right? Um, That throng the woods. The enemies are closing in. They're in darkness and fear. So we get the poem. We get Light as Leaf on Linden Tree for the first time, uh, sung by Halog um, for hearts uplifting. 
And what is it that uplifts their hearts? Music of mirth and mourning blended, yet in hearts does echo. A song he made them for sorrow's lightning, a sudden sweetness in the silent wood, that is light as leaf on linden called, whose music of mirth and mourning blended, yet in hearts does echo. Certainly true. It is certainly true that the music of mirth and mourning does yet in hearts echo, right? It's still echoing in the hearts of Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin in the Fellowship of the Ring. The same poem now revised in the same context, right? Um, yeah, trifle exactly. Turin has just departed from Morwen, has just separated from Morwen, has just experienced one of the sorrows of his life. Um, and he does um, cry out for this. Yeah, Trifle's quoting this. She's got her copy of Laser Valerian out. Um, the hills are hateful where hope is lost. O Morwen, my mother, I am meshed in tears, for grim are the hills and my home is gone. Uh, she says, I feel like Frodo could relate to this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, quite, quite, quite likely so. Being sent off into exile, right? Going there, but not back again, as far as you can see. Um, yeah, we can see a p the parallel with Frodo's situation here and how the music of mirth and mourning might affect him, right? And uh, Mad Violinist, as you were saying uh, a long time before, the essential story of not of their triumph over darkness, but of Luthien's sacrifice, even though it was a costly sacrifice for others, right? Um, Luthien's sacrifice, that is the kind of core inspiration for Frodo, right? Um, it is in that sense, you could say, that as, uh, as Sam um, intuits later on, right? they're in the same story. Um, their story is the same story as the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, they are I, not just because Frodo and Sam are fighting the darkness together. And, you know, it's not just the sort of superficial parallels um, of the two of them together going into the, you know, the, 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 the center of the dark one's realm and casting him down from his throne and all that. It's not, it's not, it's not that right. Um, ultimately, it is Frodo who is Frodo's sacrifice, which is going to be parallel uh, both to Baron's sacrifice, but also to Luthien's. Right, he's going to be like Baron, um, losing a finger instead of a hand. Right, but um, but also he's going to be like Luthien, um, and they will love. Uh, they will lose him whom they loved. Right, as he leaves uh, the Shire, which Sam was hoping that he was going to enjoy for years and years yet. Right. Um, but, uh, so the point that I'm making here is that it is no accident that Strider sings this song here. Right. It is no accident that it's not a, it's not a new concept that Tolkien would associate this song with, hearts uplifting, right? At a moment of darkness and fear and doubt and uncertainty with the servants of the enemy closing in. That is the original application. It's not the source, 
of the poem, right? I, as I said, I, you know, the, the, the poem has its source before that, and the story of Baron and Tenuvio predates it uh, in one version. Um, so again, it's not like the story is invented at this point, but it is first applied in a moment that is exactly like this, right? Um, the Baron and Luthien story is designed to be sung at a moment like this. Um, yeah, so there is, I think, a lot that we can learn about the blending of mirth and mourning uh, by looking at this song and it's and the way in which it is not randomly, not arbitrarily, not uh, uh, sort of fleetingly applied to this kind of moment. This is the best possible kind of story to tell in this sort of moment. Um, and the power of the music of mirth and mourning being blended in it will still echo in hearts, right? Uh, ages and ages later. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, anyway. I have done something today that I have not done in more than a year. Easily more than a year. I have finished all my slides. Oh, look at that. I got through everything I planned to get through today and it's still time to do our field trip as normal. Exactly on time. How about that, right? That never happens. So next week, we're going to, we're going to, uh, I'm going to sign off, uh, Twitter here because we're going to go and do our field trip. So, uh, we're going to do our field trip next week. Of course, we will resume after Strider stops telling his story and what happens immediately after that. Um, so, um, uh, uh, so we're going to, we're going to, I don't know if we'll, finish the chapter next week that seems a little rash uh but uh but i bet we've got two weeks at most left in this chapter that seems totally fair um uh so uh anyway thank you for uh uh going back on our little historical look uh here over the uh the 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 sort of the ancient history of baron and luthien and how it um uh how it how it applies here and helps us to understand, I think, to some extent, the importance of this moment uh, in the story. Um, and of course, you'll remember a thing that I forgot to say. Um, remember that most important sentence Tolkien ever wrote, as I was arguing, right? When Strider first says, I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel. It is the moment when the story of Baron and Luthien bubbles up into the Lord of the Rings as well. That's the moment when everything comes together, when the world of the Silmarillion legends and the world of this Hobbit sequel come together and become merged into one big story that Tolkien's story uh, world and therefore his entire creative life is transformed. And it's, it's as always, it's always about the uh, the story of Baron and Luthien. Story of Turin Turambar is always where he starts, uh, but uh, <laughs> The story of Baron and Luthien is always uh, the one that uh, uh, that 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 comes in uh, and uh, is such a uh, a huge and transformative influence on him. So, all right, thanks everybody. So we're going to do our field trip now.
And I'm going to sign off on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. All right, there we go. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. So, yeah, so I started reading the poem and then explaining the poem. I mean, that's literally what I've been doing with my daughter, too, because I'll read her the poem and then I'll finish and she'll just kind of look at me and then she'll go, okay, what's the TLDR on this? Yeah. So, yeah. For those who don't know, that's, that's uh, abbreviation for too long, didn't read. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, and I have to say that the um, Aragorn's prose afterwards i mean as 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 one of the listeners was saying um mm-hmm. it's it's awful dense you know i mean that 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 yeah. big fat paragraph stuffed full of names is so skippable especially for a young reader yes exactly uh but yeah and i think i ended up you know turning off the kindle at this point and having a long discussion about baron and luthien at the time yeah yeah. She's still mad there's not like a big illustrated Silmarillion that's made in much plainer language like, you know, the Dolores Greek myths books or something like that. Right, yeah. <laughs> Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. All right. All right. We're going to head back to the Lonelands. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do that. Okay, so we're going to go back to the Lonelands. Uh, we have been... So last time, I'm about to say last week, but of course we didn't do it last week. Last time we did our field trip, I found my hypothesis that I formed on top of Weathertop uh, 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 completely justified uh, in yes. extremely satisfying ways. Uh, <laughs> when I was suspecting from the look of the lay of the land and the positioning of the ruins um, that um, we were looking at the road, the east-west road, as the frontier between, uh, as the 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 frontier between the Rudauran and the Arthodinian uh, uh, ruins, and it's interesting because, of course, we just we don't have that level of detail about where things were. I mean, we know that uh, Emonsul was sort of at the frontier. We know that there was a battle there, of course. Um, we know generally where Rudauer was, you know, and where, and where the boundaries were. But anyway, the idea that they would kind of march, especially the way that they have the terrain set up there in the Lone Lands with <laughs> the road kind of going through the middle and, you know, high, the, you know, higher ground both to the north and the south of it. Yeah, um, yeah. You know. Oh, is everyone ahead? By the way, I had some. Tr- we got some tremendous lag going on right now. Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of uh, trying to work through that here. Yeah. Uh, um. Let's meet at the gate out there. Safe. Yeah. Trying to make it out of Bree Town. Yeah. Whew. Ah, Harvest okay. Festival's over, over guys. <laughs> okay. Are the people. Okay. Still lagging. Okay. Whew. Yeah. All right. Ooh, let me turn my graphics down. Whoa, Woodsman Gate nearly finished me there. All right. 
It's like real life. I pass through a doorway and then I suddenly forget where I am and what I'm doing there. Right, exactly. All right. Okay, let's head out towards the Lone Lands. All right. All right. Um, sorry, I'm now thinking about that concept of the child Silmarillion. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? It's like, because I have to sit down and I have to do the simple version, you know? Yeah. But she she loved the 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 story of Baron and Luthien. What I could remember without pulling out the book, and she loved the fact that you know in in the in that in that version, unlike the early poem, it's all Luthien doing all the heroic stuff. Yes, yes. So she's she's definitely a damsel for for today. I think we need we need more Luthien's <laughs> stories and songs in cinema. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, I know it's it's one of the. Uh it's one of the frustrations that so many Tolkien fans have had, you know, when people who have only read the Lord of the Rings or worse still only read the Hobbit complain about yeah. Tolkien and strong woman characters. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, I mean, how many times has this debate happened? Right. You know, we're, to, we, you yeah. know, but, but Luthien. usually we can shut him down with Eowyn, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. No, I mean, just the sheer number of female characters in those books. It does. It does. Yeah. It's different. They have. It's yeah, different. it's different. Yeah. Of course, um, Silmarillion is just, you know, elves behaving badly the whole time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't think. See, the hard thing is. I feel like if you if you were to do it right. <laughs> Oh, we're, we're making me do it now. Okay, okay. <laughs> if you were to do it right... <laughs> All right. You would have to do it... You would have to do it within a frame. So I think the model... We, we have a model for what the uh-huh. child Silmarillion would be like, Yeah, right? I think Dolores' Greek myths and Nor- Norse myths, I think, are some of the, the finest true. books for I mean, kids about mythology. I agree. I think that... The, I mean, I'm a big fan of those books, too. Um but we have a model within Tolkien. That's right? true. We have a model within Tolkien, which is the the Gilgalad poem that we were just reading a few weeks back, right? That mm-hmm. is, I think that's pretty clearly a child's version of the Silmarillion story that Bilbo wrote for Hobbit children, yep. like Sam. Yep. When he was, I don't know if I could make the whole thing in rhyme, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that's a problem. <laughs> I think that would be the best way to do it. Um, but even if we did it in prose, um, you know, we do have uh, we do have. I mean, and, and that's something I I'd, I'd, I'd never really thought about that poem that way until we discussed it, you know, a month ago. Um, yeah. Um, oops, boy! It's like every time I go past this guy, I introduce myself to him. What do you need? Okay. It's I different server every, every time, man. Different server every time. Different picture every time. I get that too. Uh, anyway, so um, but yeah, I, I I think it is really kind of fun to think about the fact that that it kind of is a thing, right? I mean, Bilbo uh-huh. Bilbo was working on it, but I, what I would love to see is uh, 
is to see this done within that kind of frame, right? Um, uh-huh. Cause you got to think this would be, you know, this would be like one of the things that Bilbo would have done. Right. Yeah. Um, It'd be fun to get like artwork that looks like uh, Tolkien's sort of father Christmas paintings. too. Yes, exactly. Uh, sort of model on the father Christmas letters and uh, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. You, you do the pitch. I'll, I'll give you some sample stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure we can sell Christopher on this. That shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know well, he's not in charge anymore, but come on. Yeah. Not, no, Amazon would probably sales. like, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 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 See, what we do is we put up fan art and then wait for people to approach us. So. Yeah. yeah. It's not really practical. No, it's not practical. I mean, I if you if we just made it online and didn't sell it, it would technically be fan fiction, right? And so therefore protected. Okay, let's okay. So first we have to do is we have to wait for an eighth day of the week to be invented yeah, so I can exactly. sleep. And then I will have the time and energy to do this. <laughs> yeah. Let's make this happen, people. Let's make All this right, happen. yeah. Petition your government for an eight day calendar. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we have just passed under Weathertop. There's weather. Ooh, the moon on right on top of Weathertop. This is a cool angle. Yeah, it, it almost looks like, like the eye itself. The moon sinking down into into Weathertop. That's more than a little bit oh, awesome, man. actually. All the ring race can see us under this light. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, anyway, okay. So now coming back, considering the landscape here. So here is the valley we were looking down on from Weathertop in the daylight, right? And we can see there are the ruins there on the south side, and here are the ruins here on the north side. And I was opining, I was theorizing, rather, that these ones in the north were probably Rudauran and the ones in the south were probably Arthurdanian, and we found that to be triumphantly vindicated, Multiple uh, evidence to support this. Right. In the first case. And so we were going to continue down to the next set and see how see how that went on. Um, let's see how it goes on, as Puddleglum would say. <laughs> One of my favorite passages in the whole silver chair. <laughs> There's something nasty at the bottom, I shouldn't wonder. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sam sort of has that kind of voice all the time. Yeah. They're, well, you bet you there's some nasty critters at the bottom there, Mr. Frodo. <laughs> there's a little ruin up on the hilltop over here. Oh, uh, yeah. This is where the spiders live. Finboga, it, oh, I I, it did look I like the man in the moon was, uh, uh, yeah. was was parking on Weathertop. You're absolutely right. Double parking, probably. Yeah. Spiders, spiders, spiders. Yeah, so we got the spider oh, yeah. region. Yeah, I remember when we took our first tour up there. I, th- I think we still have that. I still have that group photo we took somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Now looking for what should be a Rudauran ruin. Not Bam. much here. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. You call it. Certainly is. Lovely. And this is of course a nice little keep up here and a nicely 
uh, nicely defensible location. Yeah. The evidence of a big, the remains of what looks like a big sort of curtain wall down here, and then this little uh, uh -huh. sort of gallery inside it, right? Yep. This yeah. looks less like a leisure palace than the other, the yes. other Rudaran. Yes, exactly. Big old Rudaran symbol there. Another one down there. All of this is Rudaran. So is the theory here that the bridge there. at one point actually went over to Oscarith then? It looks like from here it's the same architecture. Yes, it does look like that. The pillars down there suggest that this continued. Um, uh -huh. This is weird, though. Yeah. I mean, from a purely tactical standpoint, this is a little bit weird because if you have this... Uh, nicely defensible fortress up on a, on this really lovely shoulder of hill, which is a great place for a little fortress. Why would you build a big wonking stone bridge up onto it from the other side? Siege engines? Supplies? Well, no, I'm not saying like a bridge is a bad idea, but a stone bridge is not a good idea. Like ask Turin Turinbar about Obviously, that, right? since it didn't last. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, yes, it, it collapsed eventually, but... Um, but you can't tear down the stone it bridge. It might have collapsed the week after. Might have collapsed the week after they built it. Never know. Well, that's certainly true. But still, the idea was to build a big stone bridge, which was a bad idea, even if they never executed it. Which it looks yeah, like no, they probably did. Uh, do we know if those are like interior-looking stones, or is that dirt down there? That looks like well cobwebs mostly, but it, I think that looks like dirt mm -hmm. down there. Well, and this might have been like some sort of interior colonnade, you know, all these, all this uh, rock and dirt over here. This might have been after like a rock slide or something like that buried everything. Right. But thinking about where this bridge was originally intended to go. Yeah. It kind of looks like it must have been intended to head over in the general yeah. Oscaruthian direction, right? Or, or most likely to keep an eye on the Arthedanian stuff across the way. Right. There don't seem to be any fortifications. Well, anyway, I'm saying from a purely fortification standpoint, this bridge seems like... Oh, yeah, no, this is, this is rubbish unless you have a trap of leading people underneath you or you're overseeing something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Water, maybe? Could it have been? Maybe there water? was some sort of... Could this have Maybe. been like a waterfall or something? Doesn't look like any... I don't see any evidence of a waterfall, but it's possible. Well, I know we're next to Swampland. Right, right. Maybe it wasn't always Swampland and... Maybe there was actually... I mean, it does. It has been implied heavily. There used to be a lot more water sources around here. Right. Yeah, I mean, I could believe that. Because then that. it would make sense to have a bridge. Yes, a wooden bridge, but yes, yes, it would. <laughs> yes. It would. Uh, we, we've seen a couple of examples of Rudar being more overly uh, about presentation than sensibilities. True, true. Definitely. He was the one who would always, he, um, not as paranoid as like the, the moonstruck Arthedanians on the other side, but... Yes. But certainly, uh, this will this will show how powerful I am without actually making any sense. Yeah, as well. Certainly, we were seeing that in the in the last one, right? The one with the half orcs in it, whose uh -huh. name I'm forgetting already. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And there's no further ruins up here, right? Just like where the mm -hmm. up this cleft where the spiders are. 
Oh, oh no, there is something up there. Looks oh, like hey, a tower. Look at that. I don't a tower. Don't know if we can get to it. Probably a lookout tower. Big spiders. No, we can't get to it. Boo. Oh, that's disappointing. Because looking at the map, I'm guessing mm -hmm. this would be a like counter weathertop high point. Yeah, lookout definitely. Spot. Right. And we keep seeing that. We keep seeing the, the lookout towers to look at the lookout towers out here. Yeah, which again shows you that you have a, an uneasy frontier, right? Between two uh -huh. increasingly hostile as the years go by nations. It also promotes it also promotes communication by a signal. Right. Right. Okay, yeah. See so yeah, see this so there's weather top over there. And as I believe Yeah just sort of moving out around here for a second oh a cliff that's a cliff jumped off. yeah that's a cliff yep that yeah so if we could just see looking at it from here that watchtower that we were just looking at right there uh -huh. would have been higher or at least as high as these as the high points of that other fortress over there Look at the types of debris that have fallen. We've had like whole walls and staircases falling down over there. Something was not built properly or met no, a terrible right. end. Shoddy building practices of the Rudarans, clearly. <laughs> clearly. Front down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I want to go, before we head over to Oscaruth. Which I am now very confident must be a Rudaran fortress because it's clearly part of this whole thing. I want to uh -huh. head across the street. There's a cliff. Oh, yes. yeah. There's some cool little gazebo around here, though. I think that's further up, though. Okay. All right, so. I want to I look at this fortress across the street here because this is the last one. This is the fortress furthest to the east on the south side of the road. This one. Uh -huh. And I am now, without even looking, I am now supremely confident that Oscar Ruth is going to have, will have been a Rudaran stronghold. This one is the last question. So the question is, did Arthur Dane extend this far? And can we see where its boundary was? Yeah, this looks like Arthurday, and I don't see the Rudaran crown. It's that brown stone, too, instead of the... Yeah, instead of that greenish stone. stone that we see, that sort of darker... Mirroring Angmar stone. <laughs> yes. Yep. Just stars. Yep. Just stars and scepters. I got these dumb walkways over here, too, though. <laughs> Oh, on the yeah, this is, this is like... Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, so this was definitely Arthurdanian as well. Yeah. And this one is... Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, so we've got this wall over here, which has clearly fallen down, so... It wasn't nearly so easily so easy to approach this interior court as... Well, this is all kind of interesting, as they've, they've built all of it up like you can't get to... Like, nothing is on the ground floor, right? You've got to get upstairs uh -huh. to get everywhere. Uh, yeah, it makes me think there was water here because that's actually really interesting. Up. If this had been wet down here, even if it wasn't like an actual lake, if it had uh -huh. been like wetlands and this was all built up, because yeah, this whole thing does 
is all set up on platforms. You don't get the sense that any of this, except for that place underneath the... Uh, which could be which could be a boat dock for all we know <laughs> right right yeah everything seems this is near the here. paranoia palace too where everything was weird walkways over spiders and stuff right right towers you know I'm not seeing much in the way of living quarters here. No, me neither. But that makes a certain amount of sense as well. Um, that uh, because we are pretty far off towards the frontier here now. Okay. Oh, oh that's not a ruin. Those are standing stones over there, right? Where? To the. To oh the yeah, east. yeah. That's where the earth can. The that's earth an earth standing stones, right? Yep. Okay. Where did everybody go? I sorry, I crossed the bridge. <laughs> All right. So here's one thing that I wonder. I wonder these. Different fortresses all correspond to each other, right? I yes. Mean, you've got the, you've got this fortress across the street from Oscar Ruth, and mm -hmm. you've got the one high up on the hill. I'm forgetting their names already. Uh huh. And then the ones across the trestle span. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, Minas Ariel does not have a corresponding Rudauran fortress because that's past Amonsul and so that's past the Rudauran border. Um, yes. This one that's right here underneath the, that's you know on the north side of the road right under Weathertop, the first one that we explored um, seems to be the end that you know that's the, the sort of southwestern frontier of Rudaur there it would seem right underneath Amonsul. My question yeah. is can we make any guess as to which came first? That is, were these Arthedanian fortresses here first, and then the Rudarans came and built fortresses across from them, or did it work the other way around? I would guess. I don't know. I think it's. Go about five kings. Huh? Five kings again. Oh, where? Uh, on the big tall tower behind the the top gazebo. Ah, yes. I somehow think that's the biggest clue as to which of these came first, but I'm not sure. Hmm. I wonder. We were speculating that that might be Isildur and his four sons. That was one of the best theories that I heard. Yeah. About that. Um. Given that there's we that have statue that... on top of the gazebo too. Yes. Looks decapitated. Yes. What's he holding though? Is that the same one we saw? I think it's the I think it's the standard gazebo statue. Uh-huh. Is that the one with like the dude who looks like he's a wizard holding a sword? A, a staff or a sword, yes. Yeah. Um Huh. Well, yeah. anyway, so here's 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 my thought. Yeah. 
my thought is, so in at least one sense, Arthodyne came first, right? I mean, yes. they all kind of splintered off from the same kingdom, but I can't imagine Arthodyne's, I mean, if you look at the big map, right? Look at the map and then I scroll out and look at the really big map. The center of power for Arthodyne was in the North Downs, right? Uh-huh. I mean, it was it was Fornost up here yes. in the North Downs. So, um, oh, sorry, I just lost it. <laughs> um, before Rudaur was a threat, it's harder for me to imagine the the Arthedanian rulers building out these fortresses on the south side of the road, especially as they are doing, like they are clearly situated, they're pointed north, right? They're pointed towards, they're oriented towards the, the, the fortresses in in the, uh, in the north. Uh So I'm thinking that, but again, the whole kingdom was in the north. This was pretty near the (laughs) southernmost boundary of the entire kingdom of Arnor. Yeah. Effectively. Um, so I'm thinking that the fortresses on the north side of the road came first and were part of like the southern boundary. And then when Rudaur claimed them, right, and like put their little crowns all over them, uh, uh-huh. then Arthodyne built these ones down here in the south so that they would have, you know, to, sort of expanding their frontier with... Rudauer to kind of keep the Rudaurans in check and prevent them from expanding southwards. Yes. That makes sense. That would be my guess. Yeah. And would also explain why places like Oskaruth up in the north, assuming, as I am indeed assuming, that it's a Rudauran fortress, looks much more like a city that people would live in, whereas this does not. This is more... Yeah, this looks more like a... Yeah, like the military. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, like such as like you might build if you were uh, trying to, you know, watch over an enemy nearby. Ooh, yeah, I want to look at the gazebo down here and figure out what's down here because this is. I forgot about definitely. the swimming pool. Yeah, remnants of a hidden spring or a waterway down here. Who yeah, knows? I mean, it's this is definitely Rudaran. This looks like a yeah. This looks like a bath or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks like it looks like a Roman bath, actually. Yeah, yeah. And there's some fallen columns down there. The water looks so inviting, too. You just want to splash nice. around in it, don't you? Especially contrasted with the red water on the other side of the hill. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is the nicest water in the entire area. Yes, it is, in all of the lone lands, really. Yeah, and all alone lands. And it is still full of spiders. <laughs> well, there's that, but, you know, if you can yes. get over that. If you can't handle me at my full of spiders, you don't deserve me at my not full of spiders. What is at the apex of the... Or above the... Uh... Scepter. Star. Is it? 
It's a star superimposed on the Rudaran crown. Yeah, it looks like it was cut in later. Some sort of tools. Oh, that's really interesting. You can see them yeah. both. You can see the star, but you can see the Rudaran crown. The crown under, behind it. That is interesting. I don't, I've never seen that in the game. I've never noticed that. So, theory... Mm-hmm. Theory is that this was originally... I think the star came first and they kind of carved the, the crown on top of it? Mm. It looks more like the other way because you see the bits of the trim that are gouged out. Yeah. It looks like the star's been superimposed over the crown. So this because place, what, trying to reclaim it for Rudar? You'd think they were, or to, for Arthodyne? Arthodyne, yeah. After the fall of Rudar? But it could no, be. I mean, the fall of Rudar is pretty much the end of Arthodyne, too. It looks pretty sharp and new. Maybe these uh, Eglane people did it. Let's, oh. let's take a look inside and see if they altered anything else. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, it's possible that the Dunodyne could have erased, tried to erase the Rudaran crown, but you'd think they'd been a little more thoroughgoing. I mean, there's two other huge crowns right there, which they could easily deface. And, of course, the Yeah, but Rudaran. the star goes on the top. Yeah, the Rudaran stuff all over the place, just as we expected. No surprise but, now. Yeah. You could see, even just from the color of the stone from a distance, this greenish stone was Rudarin. Man, the Arthodanians and Rudarins must have had fantastic calves with all the stairs around here. So true. Okay. I'm seeing... Alright, let's split up and look for clues, gang. Yeah. I'm... I see the guard tower's been bricked up. Big, huge archway. Right up here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take so a look at that. we've got the two crowns with the scepter beneath the arch and then the king on top yes okay that's we've seen that pattern before yeah same yeah. thing here on the bottom yeah end. and okay but we're not seeing the same kind of gothic arch with that you know the pointy no. arch with the uh Oh, I wonder how that tower would have ended if it weren't broken yeah. down. Hmm. Okay, so I think all these rounded arches are going to be the same. Yes, they are. Do we have any non-rounded arches? Any of those? I want to see if we can find another superimposition. Hmm. See, we got this area over here is nothing. Yeah. Oop, low ceiling. Yeah. That is a functional ceiling right there. Huh. Okay. The tops of those towers are just strange. Yeah, they look like rib cages. Yeah, they look very like very half-hearted attempts of the <laughs> of the towers in Enuminous. Do you think that's what they were going for? It 
it definitely seems like a culture that lost the art of the domed ceiling. Yes. Like we know there, there should be four pointy bits up at the top of the tower, but we don't really remember how to do that properly. So we're going to make it instead look like, you know, a hand with broken and reset fingers up at the top. It looks like some medieval illustration of the tower of Babel. I mean, it kind of does actually. Oh, here we go. Broken wall. What we got up here. Uh, yeah, all we get are those rounded arches anywhere. We get them in a bunch of places with the set yeah. there two crowns. Like even in smaller version on this little door that they bricked up for some reason. <laughs> Probably to keep people from messing around in the guard tower. Yeah. We got like the I mean, they... of the Montuado in here, so yeah. Instead... <laughs> For the love of God, Montresor! <laughs> I just did an illustration of that for Ravencon. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I had fun doing that. Yeah, I tried to do like all all Corman-esque too, with all these wild Technicolor lights everywhere. I, I like I like Corman's interpretation of Poe. It's a little groovy, but very fun. <laughs> Cool. Well, it looks like the skeletal bits at the top of the tower are definitely fragmentary, so we can't uh, we can't judge them too much on their current state because it's clearly not what they were intended to be like. Yeah. But it's hard to see what they were intending to be like. It almost looks like some sort of fin. Yeah, it does look like a fin. I wonder if we've seen it anywhere else and it was complete. We just don't recognize it. Hmm. All the bricks are sideways, too. It's very impractical. Let's see. Go along this way. Yeah, Ooh, I, we can't. I, I want to go. Yeah, we can't. I want to go outside and around the other side over here. I saw another. <sighs> what was it? Oh, 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 oh. Gate or something over here. Oh, can oh, I get wait, on here? Wait, yes, wait. I can. Hang on. Hey. Up here by the Look reflecting right pool. We have another gothic arch. Oh, man. Huge, but there's no star superimposed on the crown. Oh, you're right. So this is what I was looking for. No star. Huh. Uh, there we go. <sighs> Interesting. But they... Did superimpose the star in the ruins of the bath? Yeah. <laughs> you wonder, well, Radagast the Brown's supposed to be in this building. I wonder if that was just his little joke when he was passing through. What, the star? Mm-hmm. Maybe. I, I mean, I he's the only something. one who could do something like that so quickly. Skirmish camp. I don't see anything else much interesting on the side of the walls over here. I thought there was a... I yeah. Thought I, I thought I saw another thing sticking up like one of those kings. Which I still this looks think... looks like a 
look weird. Gondor wing helmet kind of thing. Yeah. Ooh, hang on a second. From this side, look at the look up at the fins. Look up at the tower. Yeah. Yeah. It was an arch facing this way. See, look, those things arch oh. together. They're not. They're yes. not curved around yes, yes, to yes. the center. It just looks that way from a distance. It was a yes. big old arch. It almost looks like a gigantic. And there, there is the king. I knew I saw one over here. So there's a king sticking up above that on the squat tower, the one that's in the curtain wall here. Oh yes. It so that almost looks like a huge, ginormous version of the. Of the same thing, like there would have been a statue of a king up there. Yeah, like a big statue of the king up there. Yeah, I could see that. Huh. That's really weird. wonder why we don't have any ruins of statues around here. (laughs) Yeah, they all seem to be, you know, set within their little, like, stone shrine things. Maybe it was, like, just on a flag or a banner. Maybe. Maybe. And Deathman is wondering if those are swan wings. They don't look like... Yeah, I was thinking they kind of they kind of look like a I mean, condor helmet. First of all... Well, two things. First of all, have we seen any wings in architecture anywhere in Arnor? I don't think we have. Uh, not an not an Arnor. I think we've I mean, seen again, some stuff the... like that later on when we get sure. to like uh, Eregion and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but we've not. Maybe in some of the Noldor things, some of the Noldor Maybe? ruins, like in the North Downs and Meluinen and other places like that. Maybe, maybe. But. But not in any of the Arnorian ruins, certainly. No. Not even in Enuminous. Again, in Enuminous, we get the, you know, we get the pointy bits at the top of the towers, but, um, but those aren't actually shaped like wings. Yeah. But this is, it really, I'm really struck by this angle because you can tell that those arched directly towards each other on the side of the tower rather than uh-huh. coming in around the tower to the center. So that totally changes my view of what this was meant to look like. Still, what purpose did it serve? No idea. Would it have been part of a ceiling, or is it just, hey, it's the top of the building? Well, it's it, like it. this little king on top of the tower there is facing out... It's like a weird birthday cake. Yeah. It does look like a kind of a birthday cake topper, doesn't it? Yeah. It's That's like a badly out, badly placed one. <laughs> it's looking out to the east. Which ignoring yes. like the red business, which Well, there's more runes up there too. Right. We've got this other fortress over here. They do all seem to be communicating with each other, the fortresses. Okay, see, look. Here, look at this tower up on the north side of town. Mm-hmm. Another ruin with similar bits. Though broken off yeah. at almost exactly the same points. But the interesting thing to me here about these is look at the other ones. What were they doing? 
the the other two. So on the big tower from this angle, all we can see are the the two sort of ribs on this side, right? Uh-huh. Which seemed like they did come together to make an arch on one side of the tower. Uh-huh. But the other ones, the ones on the west side of the tower, where did they connect with each other? Uh, maybe make... they mirror. Yeah, so there were there were going to be like two gothic arches on each side of the tower. Yeah, yeah, come stand over here, you can see what where? what where? it was trying to do. Where? Right where my guy's standing. Over here. Wait, which one is your guy? Yeah, Kofi with the reindeer and the black starship. Oh, and the reindeer. Okay, we're all up on the hill here. Yeah, yeah. Come down, down here, and you can see you can oh, okay. see where the arc is going to mirror the other arc. Oh, you're looking up here. Yeah. Aha. Uh -huh. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. Clearly. Clearly, there were two. Because I was looking. Oh, look, and there's another cake uh -huh. topper king dude looking off to the west here on this other side. Yeah. So they're totally symmetrical. I was looking yes. up at. Just the vigilant kings, I guess. Where is it? This tower over here, which I now can't see from down here. I could see that better from up top. Yeah. Back from over here. From this hill. Yes, so... The stonework behind the arches suggests uh -huh. that that was enclosed... So you've got the two arches and stonework. Like a vault kind of thing. Yeah, like a tunnel or something. Right? Uh -huh. So that you had this sort of. What would it oh, be? Oh, man, like you'd a, get a draft through there. Yeah, like sort of a steeple thing. No, that'd blow the hair off your head. Yeah. If you made a um, wind tunnel up there. Yeah, Deathman is suggesting maybe a signal beacon. That's possible. It would have been shielded from the north and south so that it would only be visible mm -hmm. from the east and west, which I suppose if your enemies are in the south there, you would build, right? But It doesn't match any of the other guard towers, which are all rectangular, though. Yes. And why would you build it on two of your towers in one place? Yeah, this is a show-off tower. Three of them. There's another one back behind there. You can see the broken-off arches. On that uh, one yeah. too, up in the north. Now this is this is a guy. This is built by a guy who, in any direction, he wanted to look up and see himself mm. or his ancestors. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the biggest of all of the Rudauran ruins. Yeah. I mean, if and you like were, you said, it's the one that's designed to live in. Yeah, yeah. You would be if you were if you were living in one of these places. This would be the place. Huh. Hmm. Very interesting. Hmm. Not still not really sure what to. I can imagine what that tower looked like when it was not a ruin. Yeah, I kind of want to look at the stuff in in Harlog and across the way to yeah. see more of it. But I don't know if we can protect Lolis right now, and it's getting on midnight. But maybe we can. Yeah, no, we should stop for Check tonight. Check that out another week. Time, next time, what, what I want to do is I want to keep going. Of course, I want to go down into Gartha Garwin. We'll, we'll do that, definitely. Yeah. But not first. I think what I want to do next is continue on out because there's no... That fortress, the one that's due east of us, across the way uh -huh. there, 
that's the first yeah. one that does not have one corresponding to it across the way in the south, right? Yes. Um, but I want to look. I know, of course, there are ruins down in the Harloeg, uh, and I want to I want to check those out and see if those are Rudauern or Arthedanian. Yeah. Um, and then we'll probably check out the last bridge and mm-hmm. then come back around and yeah come back around and do the, the garwin yeah gartha garwin yeah yeah and look around oh. in there hmm. Hmm. any theories to put forth right now let's see well i'm thinking that's gonna be rudauran you can tell by the color at this point i'm pretty sure that's gonna be rudauran yeah and it matches uh, the guard tower yeah it matches the guard tower um I'm pretty sure that everything in Gartha Garwin is going to be Rudauran too. Um, uh-huh. And that just sort of goes with what the whole idea of the Rudaurans claiming this southern frontier. If the um, if the Arthedanian kings then built those fortresses along the south in order to again in order to prevent the Rudaurans expanding south. Uh, and kind of keep them in check all along there. The question then becomes the Harluig and whether... Because that doesn't seem to serve the same purpose. No, but I do think it is Arthedanian, but there's got kind of a labyrinth down there of something that used to be a bigger thing. I need to take a look to figure out exactly what it was. I don't remember. I would guess it would be Arthedanian just because they seem to have claimed everything south of the road here. Um, and since it's south of the road, I would, you know, that I would kind of, that's what I would expect most. But I don't see the function of it like you can see the function of it. Of the yeah, of and it. it does have a clear function, but I don't think I've sat around and looked at it and thought yeah. what it was, though. Because well, it's we'll different than the out. other we'll, ones. We'll try yeah. we'll go down there to, Har- to the Harloeg and we'll go over to uh-huh. the, We'll start over that one across the way and then we'll head down to the Harloeg and see, see what we find Sweet. down there. Okay, then. That's where we'll go next week. But yes, it is getting late. We should go now. Thanks, uh-huh. everybody, for joining us this week uh, for more poetry discussion. And then uh, and then finally getting to the field trip here on Crick Hollow. Thank you for your patience, everybody, and with my non-field trip uh, last week. Um, we will be back as usual next week. And as I said, we'll continue our exploration of the Lone Lands here. And we will... Uh, move towards the attack of the ringwraiths finally. So that'll be fun. So thanks everybody for joining me. Good night. <laughs> thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.